Elizabeth and I left Monterey, California on a flight. And we uh, somehow got kicked off of multiple flights and ended up in Newark, New Jersey at 2 in the morning. Uh, we had checked all of our bags through. So when I left California, I had a pair of golf shorts and I had a polo shirt and that was it. Just got on the plane with a book and myself, thinking I would arrive back in Greenville. And we ended up in Newark at 2 in the morning. They told us that we wouldn't have a flight, and they put us up in this hotel. And it was snowing. We left Monterey, and it was beautiful, 75. And we ended up in Newark, and it was snowing. And we got on one of those trams, and we went to the hotel, and we got to the bar because that was the only place to eat. And we sat there, and we ate a burger. The bartender cooked our burger. I actually asked him, can I go back and cook it for myself? I would rather cook it for me than you cook it. And I remember we turned to Elizabeth, two in the morning, we're sitting there in this hotel in Newark, New Jersey, and I turned to her and I said, how in the world did we get here? How did we end up in New Jersey at two in the morning in this hotel bar eating an awful burger? How did this happen? And she said, I have no idea. We're going to answer two questions today. The first question is this, how did we get here? And then the second question is, how do we live here? Let me give you a longer introduction than I normally would. But first, how do we get here? Christianity is headed down the path. I hope you know this. I've been saying this for years. Christianity is headed down the path of persecution at best. At best. And when you say, well, what could be worse? I'll tell you many things that could be worse than persecution. Irrelevance. Heresy selling out the gospel, those are all way worse options than persecution. It might not be in my lifetime, and it might not happen. There could be revival, I'm not sure. But if we take it through, if we just kind of look through it, and I'm not going to go all the way back, but let me just go back a century or so. Starting with the Industrial Revolution, we see that Christianity and those early forming documents in 1900 and 1910 are struggling to find their place in society. And then 19... 20 comes, and that's the end of the Great War. The Great War ended in 1918, and the 1920s come, and there's this uh, confluence of liberalism and the rise of fundamentalism, and all kinds of schisms within Christianity start to start in the 20s. Of course, the roaring 30s, and Christianity still can't figure out what it's for or what it's against. And Christianity at that point starts to define itself more of what we're against rather than what we're for. And then everything kind of pauses. Interestingly, theologically, everything takes a break in the 40s, of course, because of World War II. All the attention went there. All the focus went to World War II. And then from the end of World War II, we see the 50s. And what happens in the 50s? Everybody just wants to play it safe. Amy Vanderbilt writes a book, The Book of Etiquette. Have you ever read that? You should. The book of etiquette. She says, look, when a husband comes home, there should be a meal piping hot and ready. And none of the kids should argue. And the wife should be the last thing that the husband sees at night. The first thing that she sees in the morning. And all the kids need to be well behaved. And everybody needs to get along. Amy Vanderbilt's book of etiquette. That was the 50s, wasn't it? Uh, Leave it to Cleaver. Leave it to Beaver. What is that? Well, whatever that show was where everybody. But... Behind closed doors, the guys couldn't deal with what they'd seen, so alcoholism was on the rise, was it not? And everybody was drowning their sorrows because there's no way to deal with the PTSD. 
you know, in the 40s, there was still an awe of God. I remember when uh, Saving Private Ryan came out, and one of the reviewers who was at D-Day said that was completely accurate except for one thing. Nobody cussed because everybody knew we were about to meet our maker, whether we wanted to or not. There's still this awe of God. And in the 50s, everything kind of went silent. 60s, of course, Woodstock, riots over Vietnam, civil rights. The church still trying to figure out we're on the right side of some of those things and the wrong side of some of those things. But the church still trying to figure out what's our role here? What, What do we do? In the late 60s, the Jesus movement started in California. It takes us into the 70s. It doesn't matter what you believe. You just have to fall in love with Jesus. And in the 70s, our denomination started. 1973, we were scared over liberalism. Uh, When I'm in our denominational meetings, the older men, those in the 80s and those in the 70s, they still wonder if they made the right decision. Isn't that interesting? They still wonder if we work from within the system, could we have changed it? You think, you know, could we have gotten enough people to kind of change it? Christianity struggling to find its role within institutions. Integration started Christian schools. Uh, not exclusively, but that was at least a part of Christian schooling starting because people didn't want their kids integrated. That's a dirty little secret of Christianity and Christian schooling. In 1973, Roe versus Wade. Just think about what you've been through if you've lived for a while. And I, I want to say this. I'm not sure if the legislation on Roe versus Wade will ever be changed, but I do want to say it's the call and the duty of Christians to always advocate for the sanctity of life. And my generation and lower need to retake that call and that advocacy. That, that has kind of been left to a prior generation and I think our generation below need to take that back up. It might not result in legislation, but it could result in a compelling vision which lowers abortion rates because women who are minorities or women who struggle will believe if I could get to that church and have that baby, they'll take care of me. At minimum, we can start there. At minimum, we can start there, but that still needs to be taken up. Not only sanctity of life with unborn babies, but sanctity of life with refugees and those among us who are oppressed. In the 80s, the church started to build mega churches. Now, those are the years, if you remember, of big bands, right? The big concerts, the big bands, the big churches, the big perms, the big bangs. Remember those bangs y'all used to wear? They looked like spiders on the top of your head, like they were about to attack you. Big hairspray. Everything was big in the 80s. There's also this development of uh, premillennialism, which connected, oddly, Israel with America because of this theological oversight that happened in some of our schools. We moved to Greenville in 1997. I moved to Greenville in 1997. I lived in the landing. It was called the landing before somebody bought it. Those apartments right down there on East North Street. Uh, $458, that was my rent. That was my monthly rent. And you paid me to do youth ministry $17,000 a year. I'm not bitter about that, don't worry. (laughs) It, It is what it is. I love the job. I moved into that apartment Here's the shocking thing for those of you who are here at K4. I didn't have internet. I didn't have TV. 
I didn't have a phone. To this day, I wonder what I did. I think I read and ran and, and hung out with your kids. I think that's what I did. I think that was all of life in 1997. And then 2000 happens, you know, the turn of the century. Nobody was prepared. Remember Y2K where we thought everything was going to fall? Everybody bought generators and rice and beans. And we just weren't prepared for phones. Still aren't. We weren't prepared for the internet. We weren't prepared to have a porn store in your pocket. We weren't prepared for 9-11. Everything caught us off guard. And Christians, I think at this point, started to become a little bit more like the culture in two areas, input and output. And input was sexuality, with alcohol, with what we would read and what we would watch. It was no longer debated. When I grew up, it was always debated. Should you listen to that song? Is that good? Is that a good influence on you? Should you watch that show? Should you watch that sitcom? Those things were all heavily debated. In the 2000s, that kind of fell away. and We just absorbed stuff without even thinking about it. And then our output became one of uh, coarse language. Uh, I'm the chief of all sinners for that, so I don't want to talk about it too long. But the output of gossip and the output of coarse language, the output of any kind of slander just became part of what we did as Christians. We lost our peculiar status. And 2010 obviously became the decade of rights. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. It's just the outworking of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke 400 years ago. We should have seen it coming. Uh, it's, it's, it was not hard to see coming. But now everybody has a personal right. There's tribalism. There's a medical advancement, which has far, far outrun our ethical system. So we advanced medically before our ethics could catch up, and now we don't know what to do. And the same thing is happening with artificial intelligence. And the Me Too movement caught us off guard, and critical race theory has caught us off guard, and the global pandemic has caught us off guard. There's been so many church scandals, and now Christianity is in this place in 2021 where we don't know. Do we give in and just accommodate and become like the world? Or do we circle the wagons and never influence the world? We've always struggled with that, right? All, since the turn of the century, the prior century, since the 1900s, we've always struggled with that idea. That's how we got here. Now, here's the second point. How do we live here? How do we live here? And here's where we come to the text. How do we live in a world where people are passing babies over a wall? And where Afghanistan is going to uh, enforce Sharia law. There's no doubt about that. They've already said it. But my non-Christian friends will say, see, Andy, see, Pastor, religion kills. And if we let you get in charge, you're just going to enforce your law too. That's the way they're viewing it. How do we live in a world where we have to recognize it's okay to grieve, and it's okay to be mad, and it's okay to weep over the news, that this is not the way the world is supposed to be? We can't live anymore with cultural sensibilities where we think we have to keep it all together all the time. I, you have to read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. People are weeping in the Psalms. There's, in Christianity, there's a book called Lamentations, a whole book that gives voice to us wanting to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And the Psalms, over and over again, David and the other authors cry out and they say, God, help us. 
That should be the cry of Christians again. Maybe we just need to start there. In the U.S., globally, Christianity has shifted from the West to the East and to the South. The greatest theologians right now are not coming out of America. They're not coming out of Boston anymore. They're coming out of Vietnam and Venezuela and South Korea because that's where in Burma because that's where Christianity has moved and that's where Christianity has largely focused and why the American males like I am will largely become a minority at some point in my lifetime I'll become a minority in this culture and that will be new that will be different from any time in American history I would say that Christians were in exile. We're not physically thrown out. I'm not trying to create a martyrdom system here at all. You know I've spoken against that for years. But we've been thrown out by and large of most of the institutions. And we're in exile. I've I've told you 12 years ago, some of you gave me a really hard time about this 12 years ago when I said, we're in a post-Christian world. And you said, no, we're not. And I said, yes, we are. We're in a post-Christian world, and so we have to start thinking about ourselves as exiles. And here's the great point. Scripture talks to that a lot. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of the minor prophets, written to a group of people who didn't have a home, who lived in exile. And so we have all the resources we need in Scripture, like it says in Jeremiah, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and to pray for the Lord on behalf and in its welfare to find your welfare, that Christians now in exile seek to go out and seek the common good of the city and the communities that we live in, trying to usher in the kingdom of God. How do we live here? Well, three points. We see in John chapter 17, Jesus asking the same question. Here he is with the disciples. And he, the situation then was worse than the situation here. He knows they're going to get persecuted. Not maybe within their lifetime or their son's lifetime, but within days or within weeks. And here he has this this little band of brothers who are insecure, who aren't well-trained, who don't know exactly what they're doing. One's still going to deny him. One's still going to betray him. Others will be scared. Others will go back to their fishing trade. As soon as he gets crucified, they'll just revert back to fishing because they don't know what else to do. And Jesus says, I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to pray for you. And in this prayer, Jesus tells us, here's how you live here. Here's how we got here, but here's how you live here. And this is the prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer, which it's got a nice tone to it. But that's not as intimate as it should be. Because this is a very, very intimate prayer where Jesus is praying for these disciples and he's praying for you. Here's how you live in this world. And here's how I want them to live in this world. The first thing is this, humility instead of glory. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hours come. Glorify your son so your son will glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom I've sent I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Humility instead of glory. Here, Jesus patterns it. He didn't seek uh, political power. He didn't seek to overthrow the government. He didn't seek to build a large church. He brought the kids and he put them on his lap. And he, and he cared for the woman who uh, was the sinner. And he dined with Lazarus. And he wept with the family when Lazarus died. And he fed the masses when they needed food. But they missed Jesus somehow because Jesus didn't fit what they expected. They wanted Jesus to be this political power. They wanted him to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted him to be something other than he was. And here Jesus says, look, I had the glory with you before, and now I've come down here in humility. That's the pattern of the gospel, humiliation and exaltation. I've come down there in humility to accomplish the work that you have called me to do. And in this passage, he's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the Father. Not to be uh, self-promotional of the church, but I, I just love the spiritual retreats that we're doing because it gives us a chance in this crazy world that we live in for you to have a space without your phones to seek the Father, to seek God, to come to him and pour out your hearts and to take some time away and say, God, you show me, Holy Spirit, where I'm to go, what I'm to do. You call my heart. I just love that we do that here in the middle of this, before Jesus is crucified. Remember, he's about to go through this awful torture and execution. He's not getting his affairs in order. He's praying. He's going to the Father, and he's pouring out his heart. And he's saying, God, now you glorify me. Now, what does that mean? God, you, you exalt me when you need to. Uh, here's a theological question. Did Jesus raise from the dead, or did God the Father raise Jesus from the dead? See, we often say Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, and that's true. But if we think for a second that Jesus, I'm tempted to turn around and talk to y'all. For some reason, I feel like you need to hear this point. If we, if we think for a second that Jesus raised himself from the dead, then it's nothing more than a party trick. Uh, Look at what I did. I put myself in the grave and I pulled myself out of it. No, that's not what happened. Scripture is extremely clear. Romans, Corinthians, all of Acts, that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. It was the power of God the Father that raised Jesus, and then he conquered death, hell, and the grave. What are the implications of that? Here are the implications. Jesus, therefore, not raising himself from the dead, but relying on the power of God the Father to raise himself from the dead, had to throw himself with humility into the unknown. The amount of trust in the Father, the amount of uh, obedience to the Father, and throwing himself into the unknown and expecting God the Father to raise him from the dead, which he did. That's incredibly humble. And so for us, we, humility before glory, we throw ourselves into the unknown, which is sometimes obedience. When you follow Christ, when you trust him, You're throwing yourself into the unknown. How can I have joy? How can I have pleasure? How can you you be true, God, and tell me that my life will be better if I don't sleep with her? That my life will be better if I don't slander them? That my life will be better if I'm generous? 
that my life will be better if I actually honor the Sabbath and put down my work. How can you? We're throwing ourselves into the unknown. It's humiliating and it's humbling, but it's the way God works to rise us up. And Jesus patterns it here. He says, look, if, if you're going to glorify me, glorify me, but I've accomplished the work that you sent me to do, and that's humbling as well because Jesus had work he had to do like we do. Look at verse 4. I just love that verse. I've glorified you on earth. I've made your name great, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All of us are called to something. It might be a tough marriage. It might be a tough job. It might be a tough business. Uh, maybe it's a lot of wealth. Uh, and now you've got to figure out how to share it and how the best way that you manage that and deal with that. But we're all called to accomplish the work God has called us to do. As I told my daughter yesterday, I told her I was going to use this in an illustration, and I also told her, once you're 18, I'm not paying you anymore. I used to pay them if I had to use them in illustrations, and uh, that's done. Um, I, said, I said to her, and we were joking, but I said to her, look, what are you going to tell Jesus when you meet him? That you spent a lot of time on TikTok? That was the exact conversation. What are you going to tell Jesus that you, when you meet him? Hey, Jesus, look at my, look at my bank account. He's not going to care. Uh, why didn't you spend more time with me when you were on this earth? I don't know. Ted Lasso was really good. That second season was a bummer, and he'll say, I know that second season wasn't that good. But yeah, what are you going to tell Jesus when you meet him? Hopefully we're going to say, I accomplished the work that you sent me to do. It wasn't the work I wanted, but it was the work you gave me. And I did it. And I raised that kid, and it was hard to raise that kid. But I brought him up in the nurture and the admission of the Lord. And I, I grieved when I lost my wife, but I held on to the faith. And I shared the gospel. And I dealt with people with integrity. I accomplished the work. And they'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's humility. I read this proverb because I read uh, the chapter of Proverbs that goes with each day. I've done that for years, so chapter 22 this morning. But a couple of days ago, I read chapter 18, which says, A fool doesn't seek understanding, but delights to share his own opinion. Humility means we learn to listen, and we uh, seek to understand what other people are going through. Holiness, here's the second point, holiness instead of lies. Let me read verse 6 through 19. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. I just want to pause. We read these words. Imagine Jesus praying these for you. I'm glorified in them. I've made them little versions of me, little Christs in the world. And I'm yours, and they're yours too. And I've solidified that by my redeeming them. Verse 11. 
and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. See, that's where he starts to get at it. How do we live here? What am I going to do when I leave them? Are they ready? Are they prepared? Look, I, I'm taking my daughter to college on Thursday. I'll probably not get more than two sentences out before I start crying. But when I look at her, I think the same thing. You're ready and you're not ready. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I'm not finished with you yet. But it's time for you to go. I think Jesus probably had the same feeling here when he was praying for these disciples. I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which they've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. In other words, make them holy. Make them pure. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. How do we live in this world? Humility instead of glory. Holiness instead of lies. Here we see God's heart for us. Just look at some of the things he does. Sometimes we think Jesus just died for us. He does so much more. He manifests himself to us. Verse 6. In verse 8, he teaches us. In verse 10, he's glorified in us. In verse 12, he guards us. The Holy Spirit guards us and protects us. He doesn't lose any of us. Verse 13, he gives us joy. In other words, he is all sufficient for everything we need for life. All sufficient for everything we need. You need joy, he's sufficient for that. You need peace, he's sufficient for that. You need your anxiety and your blood pressure lowered, he's sufficient for that. He has everything we need. He's given us and taught us everything we need to know. Paul David Tripp says it this way. The church is not a theological classroom. It's a conversion, a confession, a repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center. Where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and to love him better, and learn to love others as he's designed them to. In other words, this place is meant to transform us. It's meant to sanctify us. And that's what he says in verse 15 and 17. Look again at that. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Holiness instead of lies. He doesn't say to the disciples, uh, God the Father, rescue them. Get them out of there. Come now and take them. He says, no. They're going to be in the world, and the world's going to hate them, and it's going to be hard. So you know what they need more than anything is holiness. That's what will change the world. They need to be sanctified. They need to seek me because then, then they will have joy. 
As 1 Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to wage war against your soul. In other words, the things that rob you from joy. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against uh, evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But holiness comes, as it says in verse 17, holiness comes with not believing lies. Because look at what he says, sanctify them with truth. So here's the question. What lies do you believe? What lies do you believe about yourself? That you're not good enough? That you'll never change? Uh, that you're not smart enough to evangelize? That you'll, you'll never be anybody different than you are? What lies do you believe about yourself? What lies do you believe about God? that he's not powerful enough, that he's not going to forgive you, that if you come to him in repentance, he's just going to shun you or shame you. What lies do you believe? Sanctify yourself with the truth. What lies do you believe about others, that they're out to get you, that they don't like you, or do you give people the benefit of the doubt and think more highly of others than you do of yourself? And then lastly, homelessness instead of home. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but for those that believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I am in them. I love verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. May be with me. Herb Cruz has that. Uh, Herb Cruz just died a couple days ago. One of my favorite people, he flew a bomber in D-Day. And uh, I don't know why that shook me. I never thought, I, I think I never thought Herb Cruz would die. <laughs> he was one guy I just thought he was going to live forever. I shed a tear over that. And then I immediately thought, oh, he gets to live out verse 24. He's with the Father. He's with Jesus where the Father is. Absent from the body but present with him. Look, homelessness instead of home. We're born homeless. Your parents might have a home, but you're born naked. <laughs> And you're going to die naked. Uh, And and the reason why so many struggle in this world is because we think we can kind of create some kind of home. And the church doesn't feel like home. Because sometimes it shifts. And the culture doesn't feel like home. And politically, you might feel completely homeless. And Jesus says, that's okay. You are homeless because you're not yet with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have a home. It's just not here. Here we're visitors But we're not just observing. Here we're tourists, but we're not just taking and leaving. Here, ultimately, friends, you know what you are? You're an exile. And you're an ambassador. That's what it says in 2 
Corinthians 5. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us, which makes sense of this language when he says, the love I have should be in them, and then the world would see love. And so you know what our job is? How do we live in this world? We live as ambassadors, creating little embassies all throughout Greenville of love. Little embassies, cities of refuge, that if anybody can make it into your home or to your table, they find joy and love and peace and honest conversation. That if anybody can make it into this room, we welcome them in and we say, you're safe here. Because this place is not like the world. We're ambassadors for the love of Christ, living in exile. We're homeless until Jesus takes us home. And then everything will be right. But for right now, don't fret because you're homeless. Live as an ambassador. I'll close here. I know this has been somewhat of a different sermon, but um, I get another shot next week. That's the great thing about preaching. You're like, oh, if I bomb that one, I'll just do it again and see if I can change it. Jack Miller, golly, Wish I met Jack Miller. Scotty Smith is one of my mentors. He tells me all kinds of stories of Jack Miller. They were at this bar. They were speaking at this conference, and they went out to this bar afterwards, and they were just sitting there getting a burger or whatever. And Jack was 79 at the time, and uh, they lost him. They couldn't find him. He wasn't senile. They just couldn't find him. Checked the bathroom, checked everywhere. He, he was a teetotaler. He didn't drink at all. So, you know, they knew there wasn't a problem, but they couldn't find out where Jack was. 70, imagine, 79 years old. You know where they found him? They found him in the park because there's a drunk guy that went out to the park and laid down, and Jack went out there and laid down beside him. And they stared at the stars together. Jack Miller, this great theologian from Westminster, and this drunk guy, and they looked up at the scars, and, and Jack shared the love of God, and he became a Christian. Laying in the middle of a park at 10 o'clock at night with this guy who'd had one too many. But creating a place for that guy to know there's love and there's home. I love the story. I, I don't like telling it, but I love the story that the pastor told me of this kid in his congregation who became a Christian because he lived in a broken home and he used to go across the street because the other family across the street were Christians and he would take the lattice work from the front porch and he'd peel it back and then he'd go underneath the porch and then he'd crawl into the crawl space and he'd crawl through the house into the crawl space until he got underneath the kitchen. And as many nights as he could, he'd go there because he could hear that family having conversation and talking about Jesus. And his home was broken. So he would sneak into the crawl space of the house across the street just so he could hear what a family was like. And he became a Christian listening to that Christian family talk. Friends, you don't have to be scared about where we are. I know where we are, where we got here. I know how we got here. You don't have to be scared. Zlatan Ibramovich probably don't know him, famous soccer player. He was walking out with this girl. You know, they get the the balls before they go out, and they have these little girls and boys that walk with them, and this girl was so scared. I love this line. Zlatan said, "Why? what's wrong? And she said, I'm nervous. And he said, why? 
Why would you be nervous? You could actually watch this on YouTube. Why would you be nervous? You're with me now. You're with me now. We will go together, and you have to enjoy this moment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We're nervous. We're scared about what's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit takes us and says, why would you be nervous? You're with me now. We'll do it together. Just enjoy the moment. Friends, how do we get here? It's pretty obvious. How do we live here? I think we live here with humility, with holiness, which will be our happiness, and understanding that we do have a home. In the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit. Father, we pray uh, that you would renew us. Uh, we are such a scared people. We're so fearful. Holy Spirit, help us to see the way Jesus prayed for us. Instead of seeking our own glory, may we seek your humility. And instead of believing lies that sin will give us pleasure, may we seek holiness. And Father, we pay that we would be okay with our homelessness, that we would be ambassadors for you. We pray these things in your name.